0: This week we begin a special feature on state and federal parks in Florida with historical ties to the Seminole Wars. In this episode, we turn the spotlight on the Dade Battlefield State Park in Bushnell, Florida. A short jog from the homestead for the Seminole Wars Foundation. With us today is Ross Lamoureux. Ross is president of the Dade Battlefield Society. Ross Lamero, welcome to the Seminole Wars. Thank you very much. What does the Dade Battlefield Society do?
1: They promote recognition of the battle that occurred there in December 28th of 1835, as well as being a modern state park with all the functions that would happen there, such as other historical programming, nature walks, and conservation of the land. This is perhaps one of the most unique battlefields when it comes to any war, let alone the Second Seminole War.
0: Before we go any further, in simplest terms, what is the date Battlefield Society?
1: The Dade Battlefield Society is the citizen support organization or group of volunteers that helps the state park, uh, in this case the Dade Battlefield, in programming, volunteering, and raising funds and other things that just can't be done by the state
0: employees themselves. What was done with this area in the immediate months and years after the battle?
1: subsequently it became a stopping point along the fort king road with an actual fort built it became army doctrine to have a series of supply and defensive forts all the way from fort brooke to fort king fort armstrong was built Close to the site, so during the Seminole War, it continued to serve on as an area. Plus, it was a very solemn reminder to every soldier that marched the road every time as they walked by to see where it happened. I've read several accounts of folks saying what a wake-up it was to see where Dade's men fell. It gave them reason to be cautious through the whole war, because that road continued to be used as the major artery on the west coast. So a lot of folks got to see it, and the addition of that fort, where eventually they had a fort roughly one day's march away from each other all the way up north that became part of that cog.
0: How soon after the relief party buried the dead did they start putting commemorative markers or monuments there?
1: My understanding is they just had a a very basic marker to the officers and men in each of the two sites, but I don't think it was immediately during the war itself that they did anything major. It was actually after the war and a subsequent move of the men that we had a commemorative marker from the government.
0: So, Gates' men are not still buried there?
1: They are not. At the end of the war in 1842, they were pulled out and interred in St. Augustine at a newly created National Cemetery there. St. Augustine had been traditionally the capital of East Florida when it was in Spanish territory, and it was still a population center for the United States with a large city there, the Fort Marion, the army post built from the Castillo de San Marcos, and you had an army garrison there at St. Francis Barracks. They built National Cemetery with those men in mind. They were given monuments that consist of Coquina Pyramid. Under one, the enlisted men were buried, the bones that were brought up, and under another, the officers. And they were given, again, a very solemn ceremony as they were reinterred. And to this day, they are very well marked at the cemetery at St. Francis Barracks.
0: Now, when you go to the Dade Battlefield site, you can see monuments. And as you say, these ones that we see were put in many years later, but they'll state Lieutenant X was found here. Lieutenant Y was found here. How do they know that? So they know this for a
1: couple of reasons, mainly Colonel Foster and his men, when they arrived several weeks after the battle, they mapped out where each one was falling. They were able to recognize each officer due to the service that they had spent with each one of them and by what personal effects they may have. So they knew where each of the officers fell and it was marked on a hand map. And then, of course, they knew where the bulk of the enlisted men fell and the barricade itself. So these were well mapped. Most Army officers, if they were West Pointers, received intensive cartography training. But even most junior officers that weren't had knowledge. They mapped it out very early on. And this was kept as a record even to modern day. So we know within a few feet where the majority of the players fell.
0: There's a park there today. Obviously not a park then. But what was the park area like back in 1836 when the relief party came?
1: the area was very rural with lots of different terrain and there are parts of the park today that are preserved purposely to show what that kind of pine barren open scrub area looked like the murky pond uh, is still there as well Uh, but because nothing of any big consequence was ever built there short of small residents and in world war ii an actual training camp for the army air corps it had not been used the state able to purchase this land and create the park and it's fantastic today to be able to go and in most parts of this park see the terrain as it was then and it becomes very interesting to not only be able to see an original battlefield in the area but to be able to picture and envision what that terrain was like and how that cover and concealment was used. The park purposely leaves those sections like that for that purpose.
0: Who spearheaded the efforts to save the area as a memorial to the fallen?
1: Well, I know that it started out with locals that were aware of the lore. I don't have the exact names, but they had petitioned the state. I believe at one point the federal government stepped in, but uh, eventually the state in the uh, 40s and then by the 60s had created the actual state park.
0: How did the area become a Florida State Park?
1: So again, through the efforts of the locals that were aware of what happened and what occurred there, and also through its use in World War II as a signal corps training area for the Army Air Corps, greater efforts were made from the late 40s into the 50s. It was pretty easy to actually purchase the land. It had been largely unused, some agricultural use prior, but when the state stepped in with a little federal assistance, they purchased the available couple hundred acres and began, again, using the period maps, with the modern maps able to, to tell where the actual battlefield was based on where the pond location was. They initially built concrete replica of the, the barricade just to show its historical place and significance. They thought they were doing great things by adding a statue memorial marker there. And in typical um, efficiency, got one of those nice centennial Civil War soldiers uh, complete with kepi and Civil War gear. Uh, And it was placed there for several years until better historical heads came in and removed that just so they could have the proper period. But they put the, the typical plaques. And then more importantly, the ones that have survived today are the markers where the officers fell. They made concrete replicas of the inverted barrel cannon symbols. So each of the officers are commemorated approximately in the places where they fell from Major Dade all the way uh, to the junior lieutenants.
0: Florida was a territory at this time. This was a federal battle. Why does Florida commemorate this battle with a state park?
1: Well, it had everything to do with being a very important facet of its history be that um territorial history, military history. The name Dade itself receives national acclaim, if not worldwide acclaim, when you have other places such as Dade County, where Miami is, Dade City, uh, just south in Pasco. Just to preserve the hallowed nature, when you have so many men killed in battle that started one of the most pivotal times in Florida's history, I think it's important, whether that's military history or civilian history, anytime you have the chance and ability to preserve that. This was at a time when history was still taught and taught well in the schools. It was a time where state officials felt they had the means and ability to preserve it, and they did. And luckily, it was kind of in a time frame of the 40s through the 60s where history had a lot of relevance. And so the state luckily had that foresight to secure everything they could and and create that little gem of a park.
0: Tell us about the boy scouts efforts and how they were inadvertently destructive from a historical standpoint
1: i have heard talks through the years that patriotic groups of boy scouts were instrumental initially in the park in helping create some of that and in their conservation efforts to clean up the area and build benches and help create the park they actually Cut down destroyed trees that had archaeological evidence like bullet holes and, and scars and marks from the battle. So, in their conservation effort to help, they actually hindered greatly the, the historical relevance of the park.
0: One can envision archaeologists doing huge numbers of face palms when they learn that this happened.
1: Oh, absolutely. From having been involved in other eras of archaeological digs, context is everything. Anytime you take away from a site, particularly above-ground artifacts, that hurts for sure.
0: As I understand it, these trees had survived because trees that had not been scarred by the battle were taken and used for lumber.
1: Yes, indeed. And and in ways, the locals who knew the relevance saved them themselves, and they made sure to keep those. Also, I heard a story from a local that at one point, when they did try to cut down one of these heavily scarred trees, the blades kept hitting ground. so they didn't want to hurt their equipment on top of that. But it was readily apparent by the scars and how these trees grew as to which ones were there during the battle at that time in the 40s, 50s, and 60s when they were preparing the park.
0: When visitors come by, perhaps the first stop is the Dade Battlefield Park Museum. What do they find inside the museum?
1: At this interpretive center, it's a small museum, and it has initially a, a video that's produced that discusses the battle using reenactment footage through the years. There is two very well-done mannequins that are examples of what both a soldier and a seminal warrior would have looked like on that day. These mannequins have donated uniforms and equipment from Steve Abel, who was a longtime reenactor participant, but better known as an incredible 19th century historian and tailor. So to the most minute degree, the Clothing and equipment on that soldier is accurate to the knowledge that we have today and at the time. The Seminole Warrior was also produced with historical help, so those they're the focal point when you first walk in the door, seeing that. As you walk around the room, then there are artifacts that were found through archaeology, found through locals that had sifted through before it was officially a park, and then you have some items on loan from both the Smithsonian and, I believe, West Point. So you have plenty of musket balls and rifle rounds that were fired there. You have the sword and money belt, a nice embroidered silk money belt, silk and leather, and silk net sash of one of the officers that was there. An 1816 musket found on site, uh, along with some uh, native beads and other artifacts uh, on display. It's a little dated when you look at some of the modern interactive museums we have, but I think the spirit and intent that had when first opened still holds true. It's a nice example, artifacts and information. There's a diorama that shows the terrain as it was then, so you get an aerial view of the battle, as well as some well-written graphics that describe the actions that occurred there. A very small room, probably 25 by 25. Again, a good example of the the artifact and the informational content. One of our hopes that in following years we can modernize it a little bit, but that's something down the road, one of our long-term goals.
0: One could discuss the battle with park rangers who are full-time staff there.
1: Oh, absolutely. You know, part of their training and uh, part of the desire to be there is to not only conserve the park through the state park mission of conservation, but being that it is designated as a state historic site as well. The rangers staff and volunteers that are there are very good at speaking to the public on the actions that occurred there for the battle and all the subsequent history that was there as well.
0: When one departs the museum, there's a trail.
1: From from exiting the museum itself, headed to the trail, there's a main trail where the battlefield itself was. And along the entire way, there are individual historic markers that describe the action on that day. There are the officer monuments that go all the way north to the head of the column and then there is also, as part of the modern park you'll go around, there are everything from picnic pavilions to uh, shelters and restrooms, the typical infrastructure that a park would have. And then there is a, a natural amphitheater on the west side of the park. And every year they actually commemorate the battle through a reenactment. They're in that spot where they've replicated the terrain. It's a reenactment held on actual land, but purposely off the actual battlefield to preserve that.
0: And the first thing one will see when departing the museum is the recreated breastworks.
1: Very important to understanding the battle and very key to it is that barricade. Through the years, they've had various replications of that utilizing local lumber. Today, it is a very large triangular pin that was cut. And the neat part about that is the latest recreation of that was an Eagle Scout project here within the last year and a half or so by a local, Tyler McAllister, young man who very much cared for his local history and his family's involved in the park and in living history there. He has made sure that that barricade continues in perpetuity It was a fantastic project. And it's the first thing you'll see when you come out of the museum.
0: So the Boy Scouts redeemed themselves.
1: indeed indeed
0: battle reenactment weekend is quite a big production there's a small village where you can get arts and crafts and you can see demonstrations of smiths and other type era tasks that are performed what all goes into this
1: I will tell you for all the reenactments I've been involved in for various historical areas, I don't think anyone puts more effort into creating this one. It is a year-round effort by dozens of people, both the State Park Service, local volunteers, the Dade Battlefield Society which is the support organization of the park, and the reenactors themselves, we spend the entire year preparing for this, whether that is the infrastructure needed for a public event, such as proper restroom facilities and parking, to preparing the individual reenactors through historical research and procurement of uniforms and equipment. But we take the entire year to create a chain of information for the reenactors in public. We are working on grants for advertising and infrastructure. We help raise funds for things that the state can't pay for. And I think that's the joy of the the Battlefield Society itself, is we are that vehicle that drives the -the behind-the-scenes work, but it's the reenactors themselves who bring the knowledge, the drive, and desire to show history the, the
0: best way they can. Ross, even on a non-battle reenactment weekend, such as the Dade Battlefield Commemoration, Dade Battlefield Park offers much for visitors. Discuss some of this.
1: we got to bear in mind that even though the battle is what created the park, there is so much more at the park than the battle itself. So throughout the year, they host some wonderful events that have everything to do with local culture and history, such as lessons on native crafts. We have pioneer history and we have a youth group that's headed up there with kids of different ages that are local who do summer camp and weekend tours and they're learning about the battle, they're learning about pioneer life, anything in historical Florida. So we offer the public those. We offer them uh, nature conservation tours like hikes, bird watching, native plant life. If you look at a calendar on the website for the park you will find dozens of events throughout the year. And those are events that draw people to the park to learn about not just conservation and not just history, but how they interact with each other. And in turn, the battle reenactment is the major event that we do each year, but the reality is we draw more people throughout the year in all the other activities, and they they work together wonderfully to bring people to this park. This park, geographically, is one of the smallest parks in the system, so it's harder, I think, there's no camping, canoeing, kayaking, like a lot of other parks, so we have to draw people here, and the wonderful way to do that is by the plethora and wealth of programs that are done there. It's a nice sight to see and more so in the last I would say six to eight years there's more things happening than they had in the last 20 there. It's exciting to see more and more events and things added each month.
0: The park does something for World War II. What is it and how are you involved in that?
1: We do, and it has to do with actual history. Uh, During World War II, the battlefield, which was not a park yet at that point, but still had a lot of available land, was used by the Army Air Corps as an auxiliary site for troops stationed at the Brooks Bushnell Army Airfield. And there was an Army Signal Corps detachment who trained and garrisoned there in tents, and then they built a mess hall and some other facilities. So being that that was an actual short-term acquisition for the Army, we portray a World War II living history event there every year in March where we open that up to many different World War II impressions of both Axis and Allies for folks to get a general understanding of the World War II era. In years past, they've done a mock battle there, but we've felt through the years and through regulation from the state that um, being there was no battle there, it's confusing. So we do true living history with static displays, and you can learn everything from the Air Corps and Signal Corps to what civilians in the home front were doing. And then we couple that at the end with a USO style canteen show with entertainment for the reenactors themselves. So the public can come and learn and yet the reenactors themselves can also come here and have a little fun themselves.
0: As the Bade Battlefield Society president, what are some goals that you have in the coming year?
1: We have the always-present goals of continuing the strong programming and reenactment that we have. We want to strengthen our online presence with social media and website. We want to strengthen our community bonds by having more people from the community having a say in the park and the programs. We do that through membership in the Dade Battlefield Society and through just attendance at the events. And we want to continue to not only have the great historical events we have, but we want to provide the ability to improve our knowledge, our presentations, and strengthen the relevance that it has to both the local and the state, but our national history as well. We want to maintain the status quo, but at the same time, we want to continuing improvement and engaging and reaching the public. Each year, to me, has gotten just a little bit better in the community involvement, and this is my first year as president. I've been a volunteer and part of the reenactment for years, but this is my way to give back for all the work that it takes just to create the different events here. I'm not only a participant, but I'm the president. (laughs) The old joke goes, but it really has shown me the tremendous amount of work that it takes And I think by being a reenactor, I'm bringing a different skill set than a non-reenactor. So far, only helped uh, improve events. I hope to continue that.
0: How can our listeners find the Dave Battlefield Society on social media? And then, how can they become a member?
1: We are on Facebook under Dave Battlefield Society. We also have a website, DaveBattlefieldSociety.org. And becoming a member, you can either go to the website of those pages and physically join, we have family and individual memberships, or just actually show up. We meet the first Tuesday of every month at the Dade Lodge. We meet throughout the year with a couple small exceptions where we break in the summer. But there are so many different roles that we have, whether you're a reenactment participant, Or you may have different skills in conservation or outdoors or just want to be a financial part of it. There's a role for everybody. And the more that we have, the better we increase the knowledge of the park and the events we do.
0: Ross Lamoureux, thanks for joining us today for The Seminole Wars.
1: Thank you. It was my pleasure.
0: If you enjoyed this show, please take a moment to like us on Facebook at Seminole Wars Foundation. Leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. Your reviews and comments help new listeners discover us and help us keep this show going. Visit our website at www.summonawars.us for blogs, articles, news, books, events, membership information, and how to subscribe to this podcast. We'll be back soon with a new episode of the Summon Wars podcast. The Seminole Wars Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to preservation, education, and publication of Seminole Wars history throughout the state of Florida. This podcast is copyrighted, the Seminole Wars Podcast 2020, all rights reserved. Front bumper music, The Devil's Garden, Roastem, provided by Kind Permission of Rudy Youngman. Back bumper music, Second Seminole Wind, by Jed Merum and Ricky Pittman, courtesy of Ricky Pittman, all rights reserved.